Everybody, this is your host, Steve Dawson. Welcome to the One Life Podcast, Season 1, featuring Jim Burns, brought to you by Music Makers and Soul Shakers. This podcast is completely ad-free and listener-supported. Please check out all of our episodes at makersandshakerspodcast.com. And if you enjoy what we do and would like to support it, you can make a one-time donation or subscribe to our Patreon page. Just follow the donate button on the top right of makersandshakerspodcast.com. Now, just a reminder that what you're about to hear is unscripted on all counts. Jim Burns is speaking off the top of his head, and all musicians are improvising at all times. This was all performed live over two days at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver and was recorded there by Sheldon Zaharko and mixed by Steve Dawson in Nashville, Tennessee. Guitars and pedal steel by Steve Dawson, drums and percussion by Gary Craig, bass and mandolin by Jeremy Holmes, and keyboards by Chris Jestrin. I'd just like to thank Jim Burns for agreeing to do a crazy project like this. And without further ado, here is episode six of One Life, season one with Jim Burns. So it's September of 1972, and I've got my life back, sort of. <laughs> you know, I'd been uh, been just eight months in the hospital there, and well, and rehabbing in and out of the hospital. And your life is pretty much uh, set out in front of you. You know, you you know when you're going to eat. You know what you're going to eat. You know they're going to bring you some food and. You're going to get your rest at a certain time. and Suddenly, um, I was set away from all that stuff. I finally, my, my lady friend, uh, Annika, who I'd been on and off with for a couple of years, finally went her own way, moved back to the States, moved back to New Jersey, where her folks were, and uh, sort of on my own. And uh, we'd been, uh, got out of the hospital in Nanaimo, and had some friends living down in Victoria, and uh, they had a place that I was able to move into down in James Bay, which was a good place to, to be. Uh, friendly for uh, a place to learn how to walk again and how to live again. It's, life is fairly gentle in, in Victoria and uh, operates at a bit slower pace. And I uh, was nicely centrally located uh, near the water and near downtown and started uh, figuring out how I was going to get out and do this, that, and the other thing on my own. And I uh, started, you know, made some friends between, uh, well, my friend that I already had there, he had a, a bit of a circle of people that he knew. And then I started, you know, hitting a couple. We used to go down to Churchill, which is gone now, but it was... Uh, a famed watering hole. Anybody that lived in Victoria at a certain time uh, had a, more than a couple of beers in that place. And started meeting people through, you know, in the uh, 
in the art community and uh, a couple of musicians. And there was a, a little coffee house down in, um, in Bastion Square called the Queequeg. And I know Valdi used to play in there and uh, all various folks. And so he started uh, nosing around, meeting folks, and uh, met some guys who were artists, uh, sculptors, painters, a, gl a great glass artist, a friend of mine, Carrie Joe Kelly, who's passed away a few years back. But uh, they had a great little studio, and he used to have art openings. and. Uh, so as part of uh, part of the uh, the fun those evenings, I'd sit in the corner and kind of get out the guitar and uh, give them a few tunes, and people started, hey, that's not bad, you know. Started getting a little bit of work here and there, and I met a fellow, uh, a guy named uh, Doug Piggott. Doug, Doug was from Campbell River, and he's actually he's living back in Campbell River these days. I hear I haven't seen him in a while, but uh, he's uh, working again as a salmon assassin, I believe runs a charter fishing operation out of there. But uh, I had met him, and he was like uh, being connected up far, farther up the island. Uh, he said, you know, I can get you some gigs up there. And so I started playing. There was a couple, There was a little coffee house in Campbell River, and there was a arts alliance in Courtney and uh, all things. And so I started going up and uh, would get up the island, play a few gigs, and he convinced me that I could probably... Uh, I maybe could do this for a living. Again, I started filling my heart up with the, and my mind up with a bit of hope and uh, started making it all. The, the more I played, the more friends I made and uh, did some real neat shows and then started uh, to test the waters. I uh, would uh, get on the ferry and come over to Vancouver. And uh, some of the, some friends I had met in Victoria had uh, had good friends over here in, uh, in in Vancouver, and so they would turn me on. There was a little, you know, network of people, and got to start playing in uh, a couple of different clubs. Uh, Rohan's on Fourth Avenue there that had been, you know, started out as a record store and turned into a nightclub that had quite a reputation and <laughs> some wild times happened in that place. I'll tell you. And uh, got a couple of gigs and did a gig at uh, one of the. Uh, one of the Easter Bee-Ins down in the Stanley Park where people, wow, who is this guy? So that was, I started feeling pretty good about that and meeting more and more folks. And was back and forth to, uh, still living over on the island, but spent a lot of time back and forth. And there, a couple of places opened up uh, in Victoria. Uh, of course, Harpo's, which, which was uh, for many, many years. I played there the night they opened up. Uh, it was Halloween of 1975. And uh, that place, you know, for went on well into the 2000, I think, something before they finally met their demise. And it's open again now as a club, and I think they're booking some, it's called the Upper Room or something, they're, and they're booking again in there. But uh, we had many great times in there. They started bringing in some great acts, and often acts that would come, uh, they would come up from Seattle, and they might not get to Vancouver, but because of the proximity, they would often, you know, we played a... Uh, Played with Albert Collins at the Harpo's and uh, Los Lobos. And, gee, it was just so many people that came in there. But there was much more work in Vancouver. And uh, so we started uh, spending much more and more time over here until finally I said, well, I got tired of subsidizing the BC Ferries Corporation. <laughs> I moved to Vancouver full time. 
So we came over and uh, I got hooked up with uh, young Al Foreman. You know, Al had had great history playing around here in town and we, we started a little thing called the, the Foreman Burns Band. Before I had moved over here, the, the, the biggest show I had done here, there was a place on the North Shore called the Old Roller Rink that brought in some really great acts. And used to come over and so many, uh, I, got to, I got to open for Muddy in there. And uh, so we reestablished my friendship with, uh, with Mr. Morganfield. That was sweet. Uh, so Bobby Blue Bland came in, saw him there. I'd seen, of course, Bobby in East St. Louis back in 1964 at a place called the Cosmopolitan Hall. And, gee, it just, you know, all of a sudden life seemed to, you know, it was a, a nice glow. Things were, things were starting to happen for me. And I went back, uh, I thought I'd go back, I went back to the States because, you know, all my family was still there and there was so much, uh, there were things I had to tie up. I got a general discharge from the Army and uh, they let me go. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd spend some time back there and I did. And, and you know, my, uh, it just, it wasn't home anymore really became that way. I mean, I, I went back a couple times thinking I was going to live down there, but uh, it just, uh, my family was there, but uh, but my home was here. So I'm back and forth. I still get back now and then, but back in Vancouver in those days, this, this is 1977 that I, I really came here full time. And like I say, hooked up with uh, a bunch of different musicians, and uh, man, there was such a, such a scene going on back then. It was... Uh, down in Gastown, there was the Spinning Wheel, the Savoy, uh, Froggies, uh, the um, Pig and Whistle, or the Piss and Wiggle, that we, we used to call it. <laughs> and of course, the Town Pump. Really, that was a, a terrific club, a nice stage, sounded good in there, good people. And, uh, you know, you could go in and um, you get a gig for a week. Unbelievable sample. You didn't have to move your gear, you could actually kind of make a living it was uh it was really some sweet times and 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 also got the, that thing where you get to play every night you really start to getting good you know <laughs> 10,000 hours you know the, the tipping point well you get to that point where like uh, this is uh, this is who I am this is what I can do and it became it, it was it was a good time you know we had uh I met so many great musicians, got to play with people that came in and out of town all the time. And uh, we started uh, getting some gigs. We'd go up to uh, we'd go to Calgary or up to Edmonton where there was a great club up there, the Sidetrack, where we, you could get booked in there for two weeks, boy. Just, uh, I mean, it was Edmonton in the winter, but still you had a nice gig and you met some good people. You, of course, Holger Peterson from Stony Plain Records and stuff, some really really good folks up there and of course many of the great uh, musicians down here in Vancouver uh, Willie McCalder uh, Gary Colliger they were had been born and raised up in Edmonton so had some uh, connections up there the times uh, down in Gaston there was a, a place the, the Anchor which well originally there had been the Anchor Hotel which was on uh, fronted on Columbia Street but this was around the corner they opened it up with the Anchor A-N-K-O-R and built a beautiful bar in there, Humphrey Killam and his partners. And it was like sort of based on uh, Rick's uh, Café Americain in uh, Casablanca, you know. A couple of different levels and uh, set up very nicely. 
we started uh, getting some gigs in there, and we started bringing in. Uh, talked to Humphrey about this. He wanted to bring in some some piano players, and so we said, you know, I, I gave him a list of guys that uh, boy were just legendary. Uh, Lloyd Glenn, Lloyd, uh, who I became great friends with. Lloyd had, uh, you know, played piano on the original College Stormy Monday by by T Bone Walker, and uh, worked for uh, had some great hits himself, uh, uh, the Chickaboo. And worked as a, the A and R man for Swing Time Records uh, down in Los Angeles, and and, and in, in his uh, position as the A and R man for Swing Time, uh, he got Ray Charles his very first. Um, gig in a touring band with Lowell Folsom back in 1950, and he also arranged Ray's first recording contract. And talk a bit about that later, how I actually became good friends with Ray Charles because I was a friend of Lloyd Glenn's. I was immediately accepted into Ray's world. So we brought in Lloyd. We brought in uh, Lafayette Leak, who played on so many of those great blues records out of Chicago with Willie Dixon. We brought in Willie Dixon and his uh, sons. We brought in Sammy Price. Uh, so many, uh, it was just one after another, the great, great piano players. I remember this would have been December of 1980, playing in uh, in the anchor, playing with Lloyd Glenn. We had a, that was a tremendous, we had, uh, well, Chris, the wrist Nordquist, who everybody knows so well here in town, played piano, and uh, Lloyd was on, I was playing guitar and singing, Lloyd on piano. We had different, sort of a, revolving uh, group but at one time we had Wyatt Ruther playing bass with us now Wyatt man had played with Charlie Parker I mean what a, what a pedigree this cat had and, you know he taught me I, I learned a lot from from Wyatt you know we were trying to got into the thing where I was trying to uh, improvise and you know be a bit more jazz and, and he was the guy that sat down and taught me he says man the only way you can improvise is you learn that you learn that song the way it is written on the paper you learn it so you can play it backwards and forwards in your sleep. And then you can improvise your ass off, man. You can't make any mistakes when you know the tune. But if you're just trying to make shit up, you're just making shit up. And uh, so those were great, that was a, you know, I was learning every night as well as, uh, as playing and uh, with these wonderful musicians and learning and, and making a living. Think about it. <laughs> I'll tell you what times we had, but, uh, and so through those connections down there, things really, really started happening, and uh, got to know, uh, you know, uh, Tom Lavin and Jack, the, the brothers. You know, Tom had uh, just started the Powder Blues Band. Uh, we were playing out of the, working out of the spinning wheel. Some of the playing, you know, we were kind of alternating in these different clubs, and uh, they had put out their great record, uh, Uncut, that started to set the world on fire, and. Uh, so Tom uh, offered, he had the Blue Wave studio over in, uh, on 12th, 12th and Arbutus, right in that area. And uh, so, let, well, let's make a record. And we made my first album, uh, Burning, came out in 81, and uh, was nominated for Juno that year as an upcoming artist. Lost to uh, the great songwriter, Eddie Schwartz. You know, he wrote, Hit Me With Your Best Shot for... Pat Benatar and stuff and a bunch of other stuff. But just all of a sudden was getting this recognition and feeling like, oh, I really had something going, starting to tour a little bit. 
And uh, those were really, really heady days. Got to, got to go over to Europe a few times and play. I met a, a great friends with my friend uh, Brian Duncan, who was a guy, well, originally a Geordie from Newcastle, but lived in Edinburgh and uh, was in the restaurant business, which is something I'm quite interested in. We became great friends, and he brought me over to play a few times at the uh, at the Edinburgh Festival. Started making a name for myself that way, back and forth and back and forth. And then, uh, of course, this was all leading up to uh, Expo in, in 1986, which some of you may be old enough to remember. <laughs> the year before that, knowing that the times were there, it was building up that this was all coming, there was a fellow that we knew that, that bought the Yale Hotel, and uh, it had been sort of uh, broken windows and uh, strippers with bruises and <laughs> sort of on the downside. But uh, with an eye toward bringing in, you know, knowing knowing that the world was going to come and visit, uh, he uh, invested a bit, and we, you know, fixed up the windows and put up a good stage. And Jack Lavin and I started sort of alternating playing in there. And we built that into a really uh, going concern by the time uh, Expo came around. And it played uh, probably six times a year in the, uh, the Yale. A lot of people, that's where they got to know me. There was some other great, one of the other great rooms that we used to play in back then was, uh, was over on Main Street, uh, Puccini's Restaurant. They had a, the downstairs bar it was called Hogan's Alley. And it was, uh, it was really a deluxe place to play. They had a beautiful piano in there. And a little stage, it was kind of cramped, but uh, the powers that be over there, who became some of my best friends in town, would bring in some, I mean, uh, they brought in, you know, Milt Jackson and uh, some really great, great jazz people. Uh, Charlie Bird came in and played there, Stan Getz. Uh, just, it was, it was, some, saw some great music in there. And then, I would go in there with a little quartet, and we became very well-known playing in there. And it was a place, a, a very eclectic crowd. This is what I loved about it. You know, you'd get all the guys from the hockey team the, from back in those days. You know, we became great friends with uh, Harold Sneps and Stan Smeal and, and all these guys who made a regular living over there. And if people would be in town, met John Candy was in one night when we were playing. And, uh, you know, there was uh, the, the high rollers and there were the rounders and everybody kind of made a little thing going on in there we had we had some great great times we got to play with uh, we brought in jimmy witherspoon put a band behind him and playing with an old great old blues singer like that was such a treat meanwhile during that time i had come back from a do in scotland and uh, met a woman who i've been with now for what 36 years <laughs> Yeah, so the times were good. Times were good. We got the expo and uh, had an incredible year that year. I mean, 86, I did almost 300 shows. I was obviously a lot younger man. We did, uh, in fact, played uh, played in uh, Edinburgh and in Vancouver because of the eight-hour time difference. On the same day, we had played the, the closing of the, Edinburgh, the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. We got a couple hours sleep, got on a plane to London, got on a plane to Vancouver, and because of the eight-hour time difference, was on stage at the Plaza of the Nations at, uh, at 6.30. 
we played there was a little uh, stage outside of science world where we right at the entrance that we had a regular gig at there was a, a folk-like pavilion that we played on numerous occasions and we got to open for a couple of the big shows on the 86th street stage including the beach boys and of course ray charles now i got to you know i grew up really idolizing ray he was one of my the guys that I really love because of his, you know, he was grounded in all that blue stuff, but you know, then he made one of the greatest country Western records of all time. And uh, he wasn't afraid to just sing what he wanted to sing, which is something that I, as I've said, you know, I, I hate to pigeonhole stuff. I just, a good song is a good song. And uh, so you, you walk into this room with Ray and uh, you know, I've idolized this guy since I was maybe 10 years old, listening to those records till I wore him out. And, and what do you say? I mean, I walked in drooling on myself, and thank God the guy couldn't see me. But <laughs> we, uh, I was able to say that we had a mutual friend, and it was Lloyd Glenn. And when he heard that I knew Lloyd and that he, Lloyd was my friend, I was immediately Ray's friend. So we sat down and talked about those days, and he had some of the stories that Lloyd had told me about him, and he told me some stories about Lloyd. And, and we got to be, you know, it, it was very nice to, to have that uh, sort of a reputation because, you know, Ray had a reputation of being a, a difficult guy. We were asking guys in his band about, uh, you know, man, this has got to be the thrill of a lifetime playing with Ray Charles. Huh? And as one guy looked at me and he said, it's ugly, man. <laughs> he had, had not had an easy time of it, and he wasn't going to make it easy on anybody else either. And he was, of course, noted for stopping in the middle of a tune and pointing out the mistakes that whoever was making, the guitar player or the drummer or one of the horn players. And uh, Mary Clayton, you know, there's that great uh, 2014 documentary, uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, about all the, the backup singers who, who you've heard on a million records but who are nameless to you and has introduced some, you know, Darlene Love and Mary Clayton and uh, on and on they go. But Mary, who had been a Raylette, one time talked about uh, in the uh, you know there's 5,000 people there Ray stopped everything played a note on the piano and said there's your note which is a little embarrassing <laughs> a tough guy to work for and you know Ray had uh, had a bit of a drug problem arrested a few times and had been giving a had been given a uh, an ultimatum you know he was going to go to jail for quite a long time or uh, he was um, going to uh go to this rehab stay re so he went to the re he went of course into rehab and was there for three four months and in the last time he was at the last period he was there he learned how to play chess and he had a braille chessboard and apparently all the the, the men were all the same color they did, they were not painted or anything they were not white and black but but he would ask these young cats when they joined the band you know like uh, to uh, they'd say oh yeah I can play a game of chess with me and of course they would think, uh, how long can a game of chess with a blind man last? Well, apparently it would last you for the rest of your natural life because Ray and that Braille chessboard would uh, just take these guys apart and send them home, uh, you know, with their tail between their legs. Now, at, at, uh, at Ray's funeral, an incredible event with I mean, the music, the stories, the people, just mind-boggling. Willie Nelson, who had a you know great relationship and did some recording with Ray, and he, he talked about their friendship and their this or that, and, and uh, he sang Georgia on my mind. And the last thing that Ray that Willie said 
at Ray's funeral was. And Ray, next time we play chess, can we leave the lights on? <laughs> True story, man. And that kind of tore everybody up. I put my second album out. We recorded it live over at Harpo's in Victoria. Uh, an album called I Turn My Nights Into Days. And, uh, I was very happy with it. I thought, you know, we, a live record, uh, you know, we really, I thought it represented what we were doing. Had some great guys playing with me, Bill Runge and Mike Collange, and Duris Maxwell was playing drums. And, of course, we had sort of revolving guys in the band as well. But uh, that uh, was very happy with that recording. You know, life was... Life was moving along pretty good. That was a, that was quite a year. I felt like I'd really, really accomplished something that year. But uh, the best was yet to come. Yeah, there was some nights in some of those clubs. I'll tell you, well, a couple of the things I remember over at uh, Rohan's, which was over on 4th Avenue in, in the very heart of Kitsilano. And of course, this is back when marijuana was still illegal. So there was a, there was a fair amount of, uh, oh, nefarious behavior going on. But some of the nights over there were pretty incredible. I know one night after uh, The Who had we were in town, and uh, after their show... They showed up, Pete Townsend and, and Whistle and uh, Roger Daltrey, and had, we had quite a session in there, and obviously we were supposed to be closed by 2 o'clock, but we were probably there until 4 o'clock in the morning doing stuff with the Who. They, they had gotten there early and played for some of the crowd that was lucky enough to have been there, but I'll tell you another really funny story <laughs> over, at, uh, over at Rohan's. Uh, I had mentioned the, uh, the old roller rink over in North Vancouver, and uh, of course, they had been bringing people in and bringing people in. But but business, I guess, uh, somebody, things were not going that well. And one day there was a lock on the door, and Buddy Miles was in town. Uh, Buddy Miles was playing over there and uh, showed up, and all of a sudden there was no gig. There was a lock on the door. What are you going to do? So he started, you know, obviously he knew people uh, all around town, uh, it was connected with. And uh, so he showed up over there at, uh, at Rohan's. The men's bathroom in Rohan's, the stall didn't have a door on it. And I went in there and we had done some mushrooms or something. It was just a little bit higher than normal. <laughs> and there was Buddy Miles sitting <laughs> in that stall. 
and it's an image that I will never <laughs> sort of be out of. I will never unsee that. <laughs> uh, buddy, man, you know, we were going to, he wanted to make a record with me, you know, like uh, Can-Am sort of, uh, you know, connection. And, uh, you know, Henry Brown, uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, nephew and stuff was kind of a new buddy. And we, we were still sort of planning on... Uh, making some you know doing some record recording together but buddy you know still had uh well he was sort of hung up in that era with uh well the drug era his behavior could be somewhat erratic sporadic one night i got a call like at three o'clock in the morning uh, saying that uh, his mother in nebraska had died and he needed money to fly there. This was at 3 o'clock in the morning. He wanted me to bring some money over to her. He was staying at the Horseshoe Bay Motel. And uh, it, that was sort of the end of our relationship, I gotta say. And uh, yeah, as those clubs started opening up at the Yale, of course, uh, next door to the Cecil, this famous strip bar. and. Uh, so there was a fair amount of back and forth between there, and as I had said, when the Yale first, uh, when we first started playing in there, uh, we would tell people, "Yeah, come on down and see us at the Yale," and they go, "Where? Oh my God!" No, and they said, "No, no, it's it's going to change. It'll be around." And so there was a there was a period down there where uh, somebody, you know, the uh, the transition from the old days to the to the new days. That you know, they never made it into a fern bar, but it certainly. Uh, cleaned it up a little bit, <laughs> let me put it that way. And then of course down in Gastown there was also a, you know, there was a Pharaohs and the Kago Club. And the Kago Club, so many guys would come up, these cats would come up from uh, from Seattle and uh, it was some uh, some rough days, but but you know, there was also, there was it was alive. And uh, sometimes, you know, you gotta take the, the bitter with the bitter in those kind of situations, but uh, I remember back down in St. Louis, a friend of mine was playing with uh, with Luther Ingram, uh, you know, who did the original Love If Loving You Is Wrong, I Want to Be Right, you know, the R&B versions before they got taken over by, you know, Rod Stewart and all the, this guy had a, had a bunch of great records out, Luther, he was originally from Alton, Illinois, great soul singer, a friend of mine was playing uh, horn in his band, was playing saxophone in his band. And we had been out to a, a show in the St. Louis area, and it was uh, the Commodores. You know, she's a brick house. Yeah, we back still. You know, they were still laying that thing down. It was the Commodores and Luther Ingram, and, and so we were kind of waiting around after the show. I was waiting for my friend JD out in the car. And we waited and waited and waited, and finally said, "I gotta find out what's going on." Went in, knocked on the door of the hotel room, and there, there they were. Uh, Cash and guns out. <laughs> you know, so we never had to put up with. You know, I never had to put up with that in Vancouver, uh, pulling out a gun to get paid. But uh, so it's one of the reasons I was kind of glad to be out of that scene down there because it it got more and more like that. Uh, but uh, we did have our you know differences with some of the club owners. I, I must say, there were uh, as all times, or you know, there, we all had our ups and downs. But uh, for the most part, it was, you know, hitting on all cylinders and uh, just kicking it out. So many, 
great bands came out of that era, so many great players. Uh, along with Potter Blues, it was a six-cylinder and the Cement City Cowboys. And uh, boy, oh boy, the, the times we had, I got to tell you, the times we had. You know, another great guy we brought into uh, down at the anchor that I'll never forget was uh, was Jay McShann, the great uh, great great. And we had uh, Lowell Fulson. We brought Lowell in, and uh, or Laurel, as he kind of <laughs> he kind of called himself. And we did a recording. Uh, Tom Levin produced a, a good album, The Class of '81. So it would have been '81 that we recorded over at uh, Blue Wave and. Uh, Bunch of the guys from the Powders, of course, played on it, and I got to play guitar on a couple of things and hang out with Lowell, who was a, something a hero of mine. And although one time uh, he had not shown up, and uh, I had a car, and he was staying in a motel downtown, and uh, I had to go wake Lowell up, and uh, that's a day that I won't forget. <laughs> out of respect for the man, you know, he was. Uh, Living pretty hard for a while there, and uh, we uh, we got him down, you know, threw some water on his face, and got him going, and uh, we, we put some good stuff down on vinyl. Some uh, just the opportunity to work with some, you know, that's been such a such a blessing. I mean, uh, to to having grown up. You know, when you, when you get a chance to play with your idols, these guys that you have really cared about. I, I know that, you know, the, the show at uh, at Expo, uh, to be able to get out and, and play in front of God knows how many thousands of people and uh, and introduce Ray Charles and get to, to be with him is a blessing. I mean, really a blessing. And it's uh, something I'll just never forget those days. And, getting out on stage and having Ray backstage and came off and, you know, shook my hand and patted me on the shoulder. And, and he came back many times. You know, I got I, I do a lot of work with the Variety Club for disabled children. Something's very important to me. And uh, Ray would come back year after year to, uh, to back when we remember telethons, you know, you'd have those crazy all-night things on TV, but Ray would come back. And, and I got to play guitar on stage with Ray Charles through my connection with that thing. And uh, those were memories, man, that you just can't, you can't buy that stuff. You just cannot buy it. It ain't for sale. Step on it. Now this reminds me, back when we did the, the Mississippi Sheiks record, played somebody, you know, like the, once, once again, back to that thing where guys down there didn't discriminate. If it was 
blues or country, it was music, you know. And uh, we recorded the one uh, about the, the, the bootlegger blues. And going back to those days in, when I was a teenager, when I'd go down to Kentucky in the summers for a few weeks, uh, this was in a, it was a dry county. And uh, now when my dad would come down to visit, he'd say, what do you mean I can't get a beer? But, uh, well, there was a way to get a beer. You'd have to drive 35 miles to Richmond, Kentucky. And uh, we had gone down there, and, uh, well, Roland, our friend, too, also, on Wednesdays, he'd say, you know, like, uh, Jim, when you when you go out and put stuff in the garbage, uh, just be a little bit careful, because sometimes somebody leaves me a little something on Wednesday. Well, this is some of that 100-proof stuff, you know, from up on the hills. But we had come back one day uh, from this little drive down to Richmond, and some of Roland's uh, wife's family had come over to visit and were sitting on the porch drinking lemonade. And uh, <laughs> old Roland was like, oh my God, we can't, we can't go in the front door because uh, we had this liquor with us and it's going to be nothing but trouble. So we had to go you know, and walk about two miles through the, through the hills in, in the back and come through the back door and go into the cellar uh, to just, I mean... Had like a case of beer and a bottle of whiskey, and that was it. But uh, boy, we had to hide it from those folks because uh, that's a sin. <laughs> a show enough sin. We got away with it, though. Here to tell the tale. episode of One Life. You'll find all the episodes up now for your enjoyment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.